All views and opinions expressed in this podcast may lead to learning. All information provided is for educational and developmental purposes only and is not intended to be a substitute for a growth mindset. Before taking action, please consult your motivation. Welcome to Teacher Talking Time, brought to you by Learn Your English. Learn Your English is a company that is changing the way people study, learn, and teach languages. Learn Your English offers students and teachers strategies to effectively develop their abilities and skills in their own time. Bringing you the latest in English language learning and teaching, Teacher Talking Time explores all angles for teachers and students alike. Got a question? Comment, a story to share, Send us an email at info at learnyourenglish.com. This is the Teacher Talking Time Podcast. You know, sometimes these tests even show that they decrease in proficiency right. after spending time learning. So the question is, uh, are the tests reliable enough? That's one thing to ask. Mm-hmm. Maybe that's contributing to, to error in our measurement. Or it could be that the what's being learned is not what's being tested. So we think it fits together nicely um, that you should allow students to self-assess themselves and do it a lot. And at the intermediate level, start really getting into the philosophy of why we do it in theory, um, what these different levels of proficiency mean. And we looked at the data, we found that a lot of the students at the upper levels of instruction, like French at the advanced level, they were still rating those lower level can-dos, like I can talk about you know, things I do on the weekend, as extremely important. And they wrote mm-hmm. that they were able to do it, maybe not 100% by themselves, but mostly they were able to do it. But they indicated that sometimes that they felt that their teachers didn't think it was important. Okay. So you can imagine, you know, if you're in the French class about um, women in the war and you're still concerned about being able to do basic interpersonal communication skills, the BICs, at the, that are taught in, in the first two years of the program, uh, you may be thinking about those things as something you want to get back to. But your teacher has gone on <laughs> and we're teaching higher level concepts, which are also important but because in language instruction is so limited, we're not we're not getting all parts of proficiency developed at the same time, which it probably needs to. So it challenges that notion of proficiency that as you move up the scale, you know everything at the lower level of the scale. I think that's inherently problematic yes. for theories of how people learn languages. What's up, everyone? My name is Johan, and I'm from Vietnam. You're listening to the Teacher Talking Time, the Learn Your English podcast. In this episode of Teacher Talking Time, I was very happy to be able to sit down with Michigan State University Associate Professor Dr. Paula Winky. Dr. Winky is a leading researcher on foreign and second language testing. At Michigan State, She researches if tests are valid, 
if assessments measure what they should, methods for assessment, and differences among learners that affect assessment outcomes. She also co-directs the Second Language Studies Eye Tracking Lab at Michigan State, and I met her earlier this year when she gave a great plenary talk at the 2019 Task-Based Language Teaching Conference at Carleton University in Ottawa, Canada. She talks today and provides lots of insight on what proficiency is, hint, it's a ghost, and what problems exist in the model that we traditionally use to assess and to gauge proficiency. I know you'll get a lot of out of this episode, as I did, and we thank Dr. Paula Winkie once again for her generous time. Now, let's get on with the show. Dr. Paula Winkie, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, I'm glad to be here. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. You are there at Michigan State University, correct? That's right. We're in East Lansing, Michigan, not too far down from Canada. Okay, yeah, very, very close. And of course, we met up in Ottawa, which might actually be further away from Toronto than where you are now. That's right. That's right. We're pretty close to London, uh, Ontario, where uh, you have a very large university with um, a big MAT soul and, and PhD program, I believe. Yes, we do. Have you been there? No, but I'm, I'd love to come. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so anyone listening, uh, invitations, I can put your email on the, on the show notes and they can invite you. Super. <laughs> I can say highly recommended because your plenary at, at the TBLT conference in, at Carleton was fantastic. And I've been waiting for this interview since then because I've been, had so many thoughts and questions and, and things about what you were talking about. So thank you so much again for joining us. Oh, great. I'm glad. Um, the analogy, and maybe it's not an analogy that you made with applied linguistics as you described it as a proto-star, and that's kind of the bookends, or was the bookends to your talk. Um, I googled proto-star just to make sure I knew what it was, and the definition of a proto-star is a young star still gathering mass. Science, Ooh, yes. science is not my area of expertise, but, uh, but is that how you definitely define... definitely applied linguistics, right? Okay. <laughs> We're still a young field, and... Um... Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes, at TBLT, I was thinking of, you know, when we gather data to measure someone's, let's say, language proficiency, um, we have to go out there and gather the data that's available to us. So you might think of it as the big stars that we pull into our uh, portfolio for somebody. So that could be, you know, their grades from a language class. It could be, you know, things that are easy to reach. Maybe it's the the scores from a proficiency exam. Mm -hmm. And what we really want to do, though, is we want to put those in space so that they make sense. And when I say space, I mean time and space. We want to plot them on a trajectory. And, you know, when we think of all of these little bits of data that we collect about a person as they learn a language, we might think about it, you know, as how do we arrange it? Um, so we'll probably put it in a timeline um, that makes sense, marking when they took the different assessments or when we collected that evidence about their proficiency. Mm-hmm. And when we line it up, we actually, in the field of applied linguistics, don't end up with many stars on our chart. We have these big gaping holes. But if you look a little closely <laughs> at them, there are all these little baby stars that shine through that we could be picking up if we paid attention to them. Okay. And the ones that I talked about at the um, conference were all of these little self-assessed indicators of what students can do. 
So you can ask students in class or regularly assess them with self-assessments. And that information can be interspersed around the larger stars of assessment. But what we really can see is that those smaller stars, if we gather enough of them, they can be complementary and just as informative as the larger stars. Um, and if, especially if we get a lot of them, they, they shine and give a lot of light. Right. So that's the analogy. <laughs> Perfect. Is your analogy of, of linguist or applied linguistics as a quote unquote young field because it's actually young or is it that the data quote unquote is young and we're still discovering so many stars, so to speak? Yes, both. The field is young. I would, what is it, 30, 40, 50 years old? Okay. Um, so we are still learning as a field about how to collect data, how to report data, um, how to gather data. We're still developing our repertoire of tools. Mm -hmm. um, we're borrowing many from different fields, from psychometrics or from psychology, you know, from psychometrics and some of the measurement issues, how to best craft multiple choice items, things like that, <laughs> things I think about. Right. But also from psychology and educational measurement or psychological measurement on how to measure individual differences like motivation. We borrow um, constructs from other fields like working memory from psychology to see how that affects language learning. So it's an interdisciplinary field, applied linguistics. And yes, I think it's very young. Great. And very exciting because what you were talking about is basically evaluating and testing students' progress via proficiency, which simply we can argue is the point of learning a language is to be proficient in the language. Right. You, mm -hmm. you presented that most um, indicators grade proficiency vertically. And then you right. expanded that by talking about, especially with young learners, how horizontal proficiency needs to be considered uh, in new studies. And then at lunch, this is what I'm really curious about. When we were chatting, you said that, well, actually, it's spherical. Yeah. I don't know if you remember that or not. That's right. But I was wondering mm -hmm. if you could elaborate and navigate us through that process. Yes. So when we have our big measurements of proficiency, you know, everyone says we are promoting proficiency, then um, those tests are sensitive to large gains. But in between those measurements, or uh, between what the measurements are able to pick up, other learning is going on, which maybe doesn't get registered or you know, the equipment we have isn't sensitive enough to pick up smaller incremental bits of learning that occur on a daily basis or a weekly basis. Mm -hmm. So I've had a lot of teachers who say, oh, you know, we gave my student uh, an oral proficiency interview after their second year. And they, let's say they got um, intermediate low. And then the student went on and took two more classes of French and they took the test again and they're still intermediate low. And they're like, how can this be? I guess, I guess a student has plateaued. And I guess that fits within mm. the theories of SLA because they say the, the higher up you get in proficiency, you have more to learn. So you actually won't increase your proficiency until you know, a larger amount of time has gone by studying. Um, so some people are satisfied with that, but I don't think I am <laughs> right. because what's going on is I think the instruments are not sensitive enough to record all of the learning that's occurring. And we know this, that proficiency develops, you know, on our measurement scales, uh, vertically going up. So mm -hmm. that's why this 
sometimes these images of proficiency as an inverted pyramid where, you know, there's more to learn at the upper levels of instruction uh, get their muster. People tend to believe in it. But I think empirically, if we have an instrument that we've made to detect something, to measure something, and it's not able to, when we know that that something is there, <laughs> then there's an issue with our measurement model and our measurement instrument, and we need to refine it. Because I think a student who has taken two years of French um, is learning. It, there's no doubt. I just don't think that we are harming them <laughs> in any way. <laughs> but, you know, sometimes these tests even show that they decrease in proficiency right. after spending time learning. So the question is, uh, are the tests reliable enough? That's one thing to ask. Mm -hmm. Maybe that's contributing to, to error in our measurement. Or it could be that the what's being learned is not what's being tested. Correct. Um, and so, and then that starts pushing our our theories of what what proficiency is. Oh, so, do you? How would you define proficiency? I think proficiency is somewhat of a ghost. So, okay. or it, it might be a way that we talk about describing language that maybe can't really be tested. Because I think that proficiency is what we think of when we talk about what someone's level of a language is, their ability in the language. Of course, that's such a huge abstract concept. Um, we, we pin a number on it, but there's so many qualifiers that could come into it. So usually when we think of proficiency, we think of what scale it's being reported on. So I might think of proficiency in terms of the um, Steffer scale, the, the Council of Europe um, framework of references for languages, and I'll mm -hmm. say, oh, proficiency is either A1, A2, B1, B2, or I might think of the Canadian language benchmark scale right. and think, oh, it goes up uh, vertically on that, or the actual proficiency guidelines, which are in novice low, novice high, and up. So usually it's proficiency is described in terms of some common language so that everyone can understand it. So if someone in Europe tell someone in the United States, I'm an A1, I can say, oh, I think I know what your general language proficiency is. Mm -hmm. So we're talking in platitudes. We're talking about a shared language. So when we talk about proficiency, that's often what people mean. And there's a benchmark proficiency level that a lot of government agencies or people use. They say to be able to be functional in the language, to be able to study abroad without much help from a mentor or to be a teacher of a foreign language or perhaps even at a higher level to be able to be a diplomat you have to be at a certain benchmark so you have to be a three um, on the foreign service institute scale to be hired to work in the foreign service or you have to be intermediate low on the actual scale to be able to be selected for a study abroad program for your junior year in college. So we, we take this vertical scale and we kind of superimposed benchmark levels that in our minds tell us what someone is able to do, what qualifications they have for various jobs. But that's just one line going up. We know that language is much richer and deeper than that. And there are things in language that can't be measured on any scale. Like, for example, if my hypothetical, hypothetical French learner, the two classes they took were on French literature, 
and maybe that person was in a class here at MSU in a class called Women in the War. So the student is studying about um, how women in France were treated during World War II if they happen to have relations with German soldiers or have children with German soldiers. And these are really tough topics. These are things that dive into history, culture, um, perceptions about the world, uh, students compare and contrast life then to life now. Um, and it's a really deep topic, but none of our proficiency tests are going to measure exactly the language that was learned in that class. Right. Um, but it's really important that we have students that know about these. It's part of critical thinking. It's part of literature knowledge and literacy. Um, it's making a well-rounded individual through language study. And those are the stars in the sky of proficiency. That That's just where we're going. never get measured. They're not even on our radar. They're not on that narrow vein of sight that we have when we measure proficiency. Let's take a quick break. We'll be right back. You know, quality professional development is such an important part of the teaching industry, but it's surprisingly hard to come by. That's why I was so pleased to come across Learn Your English, a company providing online teacher education courses with a fresh perspective. My name is Erin, and I'm an English language teacher. After a decade in the classroom, I found myself teaching the same things in the same way. My learning seemed to have plateaued. I wanted to take charge of my learning, and I really like how the online Learn Your English courses don't prescribe anything. They motivate me to reflect on my teaching and propose tactics and ideas I hadn't considered. If you're a language teacher wanting to learn inside your busy schedule, I highly recommend their online courses on Thinkific. Head on over to lyenetwork.thinkific.com. That's lyenetwork.thinkific.com. Take control of your education. You won't regret it. Howdy people, this is Ajita and I'm from India. You're listening to Teacher Talking Time, the Learning Your English podcast. But it's really important that we have students that know about these. It's part of critical thinking. It's part of literature knowledge and literacy. Um, it's making a well-rounded individual through language study. And those are the stars in the sky of proficiency that That's just where we're going. never get measured. They're not even on our radar. They're not on that narrow vein of sight that we have when we measure proficiency. Right. So that, that begs the question, because you're right. I mean, I agree when the vertical scale, usually we're talking about accuracy, grammatical accuracy, and not a lot else per se. What That's one really good example. I was going to ask you for examples of what the horizontal scale might include and that we usually don't pick up. Just off the top of my head, I'm thinking about just general tasks, task completion, functionality in a language as opposed to simply accuracy and even fluency. Right, right. Yes, we have people we know who can be very creative with, with language. They may not be accurate, they may not be fluent, but mm -hmm. they can actually get a lot of their meaning across. Um, and for them, they're kind of, they can do more than they should be able to do in the language, <laughs> right? Through their creativity, their personality or, or whatever. Or at least what and the test would say they could do. Yes. So. 
that's where you start to see that language isn't just language. It's those social connections you have with people. Some people are people people. <laughs> and yeah. then that kind of builds up a buffer around their language skills. And that too is something that we tend not to assess in proficiency assessments. That's starting to change as people are starting to do more paired assessment or group assessment where you can actually see people how they interact with um, one another, whether they're good at giving turns, whether they're good at opening the door to get others to speak. Um, and those types of categories are starting to enter on paired and group assessment rubrics, mm. on analytic rubrics. You know, if there's five different categories that are being rated and some of them are those CAT measures, complexity, accuracy, and fluency. Well, what about task completion, being able to participate in this group work? And also, are they, are they interactive in a helpful way? Do they not hog the floor? Do they invite the ones who don't speak very much to actually participate? Are they able to build the communication larger in, in a way that goes beyond their own speech contributions? Um, and that we're starting to see in the field too is more than just the traditional OPI, oral proficiency right. interview type of examinations and more speaking examinations that go into tapping into many of these other components of good communicators. Mm -hmm. You're using a lot of the language there that I remember you used in the talk because you're saying students can do, they can do, they can do, can't yeah. do perhaps. Uh, you talked about programs having can-do statements throughout their program to chalk or to measure proficiency. You gave some good examples and some bad examples of can-do statements. For example, I can ask for and provide descriptions of places I know as a bad as a bad example of a can do statement why would that be a bad example and how do can do statements uh, improve programs right. in terms of proficiency yeah so this was something I talked about at the plenary um, I collaborated with a graduate student here at Michigan State University named Magda Tigchalar she's mm -hmm. now graduated um, and she went on to do a dissertation um, based on our project where we were looking at the can-do statements. Um, at Michigan State University, we were giving many oral proficiency exams, the actual OPIs, the oral proficiency interviews that are computerized. Um, and while we were giving those tests to students, parallel to that, we gave can-do self-assessments. And what we did is we took the can-do statements that were published by ACTL. There are similar ones published um, by the European Union for the Sefer scale. Um, we took these can-do statements, which are divided up according to the various proficiency levels and put them together in a test. And we wanted to see if they would correlate or be associated with the more expensive <laughs> of actual OPICs. Because remember, the actual OPICs are quite expensive. Um, okay. Uh, $100 or so per student, whereas the, the can-do statements we were creating were free. <laughs> um, so we used their own statements and, and gave them, and we found that some of the statements that were being given were actually not good at measuring language, that the, the data, like students at the higher levels should be saying that they can do these statements that are relatively simple, and students at the lower levels should be saying you know, they can't do it or they're struggling to do it. Uh, we asked on a Likert scale how well they could do different things. Right. 
Yeah, some of the lower level statements, uh, can do statements or things like I can say the date and the day of the week, mm. or I can list the months and seasons. So really novice level students would struggle with that. So they may on a Likert scale of one to four, kind of give it a two or a three, but students at the upper levels, hands down, they should all say that they can do it no problem. Right. But we found some of these items were problematic where that pattern of expected response was not occurring. So one of the questions at the lower level was, I can state my favorite foods and drinks and those I do not like. Um, and it's just, hmm. these are problematic because there's so many things. The students, when they take it, they're probably trying to think, well, what should I respond to? I can state my favorite foods, but I'm not sure I can say what I don't like. So we found that when these long can-do statements have multi-parts, to them or are asking actually more than one thing at the same time, you get varying responses because students are thinking about varying things. Um, so one of our pieces of advice at the end of our first paper, which was published in Foreign Language Annals, was that the can-do statements have to be simple and each one has to ask only one question, at least for an assessment context. Right. Do so. Can-do statements are reflective, of course, for of the student to maybe check their own progress. Um, do you find that to be effective? Yes. So okay. when we started giving these can-do statements, uh, students were very curious about them, and they actually did really well. They were able to use the can-do statements to estimate their levels of proficiency with pretty high accuracy especially at the beginning level, so students in the first year of foreign language study, and at the upper levels in their third or fourth year of foreign language studies. They were, they were accurate at a rate that, you know, OPIC raters are. <laughs> oh, wow. So the problem was in the middle. So the intermediate level students would either grossly underestimate or be on target or grossly overestimate. So in a second study that I did with a graduate student at MSU named Melody Ma, it was her um, MA thesis, we looked and saw that the can-do statements don't really align well with OPICs on a linear format. You know, a single line, if we say, is there a one-to-one -one correspondence? No, there's not. It's more of an S-shaped curve. <laughs> so at the bottom of the S, the novice level students, they align really well. Then at the top of the S, uh, the top of that curve, the advanced students align really well. Their can-do statements and their their self-assessment and, and their um, OPICs. But in the middle of the S, the, those intermediate students, that's where we see variation and where students need guidance mm -hmm. on understanding their own proficiency and how it's described and what expectations are. But that fits really well within pedagogy because it's at the middle that we want to increase motivation to learn because it's at the middle where they drop out <laughs> and don't keep right. going up to the advanced level. Lourdes Ortega and many other authors have written a lot about in Heidi Burns, how do we keep students in foreign language programs so that they get to the advanced levels of proficiency. Mm -hmm. so, so we think it fits together nicely um, that you should allow students to self-assess themselves and do it a lot. And at the intermediate level, start really getting into the philosophy of why we do it in theory, um, what these different levels of proficiency mean.
Mm-hmm. Good. Uh, what in that? So in order to do that, then on the teaching side and in the the program side, we need to align our courses and our programs over all of those levels, right? So sometimes, maybe more often than we'd like, a lot of programs have many different levels, but there might not be a lot of continuity in terms of program checklists or development or the scaffolding of the program from level one, let's say, to level, you know, how 10, 11, 12, whatever it is. Right. What would you say, what do programs need to do to ensure that students are able to self-check throughout? Imagine, I mean, not all students do, obviously, but let's say a student starts in level one and then proceeds through the entire program. Right. How can programs set up their programs so that that student would able to be to do this successfully? Well, this is where I, I really think that programs should not just be taking ACTFL or CEFR or Canadian language benchmark can-do statements wholesale. What they should do is comb through them. So let's say I teach at a, at a French high school in Canada, and mm-hmm. we have four years of French. Um, we as a faculty should sit down and look at the Canadian language benchmarks can-do statements and pick the ones that we are doing and plug them in say, oh, well, in the first year, we're teaching students how to present about their interests. We're doing hobbies. Um, We get them to talk about their preferred activities. And all of those are benchmarks and can-do statements that are represented on, on the chart that the Canadian language benchmarks folks have given us. So we put all that in and we pepper them through our whole curriculum to describe what we're doing. But then we should also look at our curriculum and say, all right, what are we doing that's not listed on those benchmarks? Because that's the learning that will occur at our institution that maybe will not align with any tests that might be built on those benchmarks from the outside. Right. So instead of taking the benchmarks from on high, (laughs) you know, the gods (laughs) of the uh, people who write these descriptors and things, is to take as many of them as we can, but then add them, beef them up with our own instruction and what we're doing. Um, And then when we give self-assessments, like asking students, can you present about your interests, add in the other ones that we're teaching at the time so that we get an idea of how well the students feel that they're learning in the program. And that's what self-assessment is supposed to do. Mm -hmm. You're supposed to be thinking about what you're learning and how well you're doing it. But if half of the curriculum is not represented by what's on the can-do statements, then you're just like the OPICs, perhaps not measuring what's learning what's being learned. And and that's the most important thing is we get accurate measurements of growth and development and progress in the foreign language. And I would, I don't have any data for this, but I imagine that's why we see a lot of dropouts in the intermediate-ish level in terms of demotivated students because they have trouble measuring their own progress, right? Right. And that was something we added into our study here at MSU. While we were giving students the can-do statements, we also asked them to rate how important they felt that can-do abilities, like I can talk about my hobbies, how important that was to them personally. And we also snuck in a little bit of a rating of the program or the teacher, I'm not sure which or both, <laughs> asking how much they felt that being able to do that was important to their teacher. And so for each right. can-do statement, we had three ratings, whether I can do it or not, uh, with help or without help, or you know, at what level, and whether it was important to them, 
and whether it was important to their teacher or they felt that it was important to their teacher. And we looked at the data, we found that a lot of the students at the upper levels of instruction, like French at the advanced level, they were still rating those lower level can-dos, like I can talk about you know, things I do on the weekend as extremely important. And they wrote mm. that they were able to do it, maybe not 100% by themselves, but mostly they were able to do it. But they indicated that sometimes that they felt that their teachers didn't think it was important. Okay. So you can imagine, you know, if you're in the French class about um, women in the war and you're still concerned about being able to do basic interpersonal communication skills, the BICs, at the, that are taught in, in the first two years of the program, uh, you may be thinking about those things as something you want to get back to but your teacher has gone on <laughs> and we're teaching higher level concepts, which are also important, but because in language instruction is so limited, we're not, we're not getting all parts of proficiency developed at the same time, which it probably needs to. So it challenges mm -hmm. that notion of proficiency that as you move up the scale, you know everything at the lower level of the scale. I think that's inherently problematic. Yes. for theories of how people learn languages because we've seen examples you know outliers who prove that theory wrong or challenge it um, for example i have a friend who works for the government and who noted that there is a high level person who is taking a proficiency test for the government and couldn't get past the opening stages of the interview like, what did you do on the weekend? Well, this person couldn't say. Okay. Um, and it turned out later when she talked to him, he said, well, I don't really do much on the weekends. I just work. I'm, I'm a diplomat. <laughs> 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 I don't go to movies. I don't read books for pleasure. I, you know. So, I don't but, pretend to know what diplomats do on the weekend. I have no idea. Yeah, I but... <laughs> This was someone who couldn't get a high level score because they couldn't pass through the lower level portion of the test. Right. Um, and so the theory was that they sh if they are a high level speaker of the language, they, they should know all the lower level tasks, how to respond to everything at the lower levels. But it's not always the case that that's true. But it needs to be revisited. And you mentioned this as well, that as teachers and in instructively in the classroom, just because we have a student at a B2 level or whatever indicator you want to use doesn't mean we shouldn't reintroduce or revisit tasks from B1, A2 levels because that's how second language acquisition works. We don't, mm -hmm. it's you know not a checkbox, oh, I've been exposed to it, I've learned it, never come back to it. We need to come back to it in our classes because students need the four strands of pollination, right? You have to right. practice the fluency, you have to re reinvented and, and redundancy working into our classrooms to come back to it and make sure that they've actually, just because they remember learning it doesn't mean they've actually, they're, they're functional in whatever point that is. Right. And another example is children who seem to perpetually be at A1 and A2. You know, they're always at the bottom of the proficiency scale. And there are questions like, well, what are they teaching in those elementary language programs? They're not <laughs> increasing their proficiency. But again, this is a clear case where I think we see students do at that age do a lot of horizontal growth. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. They they are building out of extremely well-rounded repertoire of A1 and A2 level tasks. So they are able to do things that maybe people who are at a C1 or C2 can't. Like how many C1 speakers could go on a playground and ask someone else for a jump rope? <laughs> so these low-level tasks that students might be spending a lot of time learning um, they collect hundreds, if not thousands, of things that they can do at the A1 and A2 level. Um, and I, I, that type of horizontal growth isn't indicated in our small, narrow, linear scale that is vertical. So, so again, I think we keep seeing these challenges to our theory. Um, and some people will say, well, those are just outliers, brush them aside. But they're not. Uh, they no. they need to be attended to. They actually open the door to questions about um, some of our basic theories of language development. Is it too simple to say? There's something that we like to say on this podcast is that we want our students to talk in the language and not about the language. Um, is it too simple to say that the linear or vertical growth is knowledge about the language and horizontal is knowledge or functionality in the language? Hmm, that's hard to say. I think the task-based language researchers struggle with this too. Like, do we need to know grammar explicitly to be able to go up the vertical line mm-hmm. of growth? So I think that that's one of the things that we're still exploring in applied linguistics is how much explicit knowledge of grammar in particular is needed to be able to go up the scale in proficiency. Or another area is how much academic language is needed to be able to go up the scales of proficiency. Mm. But we know, I think part of this academic definition of higher level proficiency is a de facto quality of the reason the scale exists in the first place, is we were in the 1950s in the United States looking for ways to measure proficiency specifically for military government personnel purposes. So we were looking for people who were highly educated in the language that they were being tested on. So it wasn't enough that you knew Spanish. You had to be educated uh, in Spanish, an educated user, adult user of Spanish. And that became the operational definition of high proficiency. So that artifact still exists in the scales. We talk about academic language at the upper levels um, and maybe those less academic language things have been descriptors of the bottom level of the scale, um, which has a lot of implications as proficiency has now been up, taken up as a way of, you know, dis- describing language even for things such as visa purposes, uh, work permits. And so this idea that you have to be academic, you have to be educated to be able to obtain high levels of proficiency are now filtering into our arguments that you have to be academic or highly educated to receive citizenship in certain countries. So these theoretical or practical reasons why scales were developed in the way that they were are taken as the de facto definition of of language development and and why someone is good at learning languages or not. Um, And that bleeds into decision-making purposes because the scales are often used to, to make decisions. Do you believe that some people are better at learning languages than others? Huh. I'm, hmm.
Let's take a quick break. We'll be right back. Hello, friends. This episode of Teacher Talking Time is brought to you by English Central. English Central is by far one of the best source for textbooks and resources in ELT. I don't know about you, but I've been going there for about 15 years. And whether you're an institution or instructor, they have a great selection for you from business to general to academic English and even test prep. So if you're a teacher looking to develop, they have tons of great PD books as well, including two friends of ours who have been on this podcast, Mr. Merrick Kikoviak with Teaching English as a Lingua Franca and Neil McCutcheon who released Activities for Task-Based Learning. Check out the English Central online at englishcentral.net or if you're in Toronto, they're right at Young and St. Clair Avenue. Talk to Nicole. She'll be more than happy to chat with you. Now, let's go back to the show. Hey, everyone out there. I am Pamela from Costa Rica, and you're listening to Teacher Talking Time, the Learn Your English podcast. So these theoretical or practical reasons why scales were developed in the way that they were are taken as the de facto definition of of language development and, and why someone is good at learning languages or not. Um, and that bleeds into hmm. decision-making purposes because the do scales you, are often used to, to make decisions. Do you believe that some people are better at learning languages than others? Huh. I, hmm. I think I would go on record <laughs> saying that I think that younger people are definitely better at learning languages than older people in okay. most cases. <laughs> okay, based on experience, yeah. Yeah, and I and also I think a lot of what we're talking about is whether people are good at learning languages in a high-pressured, speeded classroom environment. Right. Um, so when you're looking at who can do the best in a in a language learning situation that's instructed and limited in time, you find that other things like working memory or sure. uh, general levels of intelligence or prior education are strong predictors of who will do well. Yeah. But that doesn't mean that other people can't learn languages in other contexts. No, I mean, the life is complicated. It's, it has lots of factors, right? I've, I've read a bunch. I don't have any data myself, but it, again, it might be an oversimplification, but some people have said that children learn faster simply because that's all they do. And adult learners have jobs and families and stresses. And and if they were in the same environment as children were, they would learn similarly or on the same pace. But because they have distractions, perhaps they don't right. learn as quickly. I don't know if I believe that, but I've read right, that. Right, right. I can see, you know, it has to do too with children's social pressure. They really want to mm. fit in. Whereas adults, oh. you know, now that I'm approaching 50, if I were to learn a new language, my native accent would be important to identify that I'm not a great speaker. You know, a lot of a lot of the work by Elaine Tyrone at the University of Minnesota showed that some people like to retain their accents because it's part of their identity to be identified as German or French or right. um, where children want to shed that identity, perhaps in school environment. Interesting. Just be accepted for who they are and be part of the group. Yeah. For sure. I want to ask you more about the academic aspect, but first, uh, I promised Melissa Beralt that I would ask you this. So, uh, do you differentiate between actful and sefer? Is there one? Is there a preference? Um, I know they're not the same, but do you? They function similarly for you, or do you prefer one over the other? 
I think they do function similarly. They have different foundations though. And I wonder if, you know, the SEPR has been a joint effort of many countries. So in that sense, it's had a variety of inputs that I think have been beneficial for it uh, in terms of its development. It's had different countries add in different components like the can-do statements, I think, came from Switzerland. Um, and then the portfolios that are being developed are, are from different parts of uh, Europe. So that large um, group effort is, is great. Okay. Whereas in the United States, we're such a huge country, so we have less of a variety of input into the development of the ACTFL scale. And the ACTFL scale was developed for a specific population in mind. It was for colleges. So in college language programs and college development. So in that sense, it might be um, really good at describing language acquisition along a college four-year developmental path. But then pulling that down to children, separate has this problem too, is how we describe the language of children. Um, we may just want to create entirely new scales for the development of language. And some right. different institutes are doing that, like the WIDA Consortium um, mm -hmm. at the University of Wisconsin at Madison in the US. Um, but again, scales are developed for spe specific uses. And then when we try to apply them more broadly beyond that original intent, uh, this, that's where we run into issues. Right. Are there pedagogical, pedagogical tasks that would be appropriate for either one that would determine proficiency? And then proficiency, again, is a big, as you say, it's a ghost, right? So mm -hmm. we talk about complexity, we talk about accuracy, we talk about fluency, we could talk about CAFA as well. Uh, Functional accuracy, I think, was the FA mm -hmm. that they added. Um, what tasks inside of each of them, or, or just in general, both of them would be appropriate for measuring? Is there a task that measures all of those? Hmm. Well, any task could measure all of them. Mm -hmm. um, there's been a movement towards not just task-based assessment, but from general education, uh, something called scenario-based assessment. And that, that theory is that you take a series of different tasks, like a reading test, today might not be just a reading test where you give them four different passages and have them answer multiple choice questions after each one, but rather you'll give them four different reading passages, provide an overarching theme that connects them, even if the reading passages themselves are not as um, overtly connected as, as you would think, um, and then give students a goal that they'll work towards as they read these different reading passages and use them to create new knowledge. Mm -hmm. So the idea is that through scenario-based testing, uh, which would be a, that compilation of tasks, but where there's a larger task, like a meta task that they have to do as their outcome measure, um, that makes students involved in the process more deeply, gets them to not just demonstrate their reading knowledge and their ability, their literacy skills, but also their thinking skills and their creativity. Um, and that might get at deeper processing which scenario-based assessment proponents hope will spill back over into the classroom as a positive washback effect. Right. Um, so that construction of what my dissertation advisor, Allison Mackey, was always searching for, the, the holy grail, the super task that will do everything. You know, we're still looking for that. Yeah. But it'll be a process task. It'll be a, a series of different tasks, maybe within scenario-based assessment, but we're constrained by how much time we can 
let people be as fast or do these types of things. Right. So there's all these practical constraints that kind of limit super task. <laughs> or super task. Will he ever fly? We the don't go- know. <laughs> the ghost of the super task. Right. Um, yeah, that is, and that leads to what I really want to kind of, the, the meat of what I'm interested in. I mean, I, I teach in an EAP context. Leo does as well. So does Mike. So to, to a lot of people who listen to this podcast and EAP programs, generally speaking, are assessment heavy. Now, you also talked about, and you've not just at the conference, but elsewhere, about tasks as assessments and tasks as evaluative. Mm-hmm. Um, how can we use, or should we? Should we use tasks as assessments? And the word assessment in its traditional sense means a, a test, but in this mm-hmm. case, that obviously does not apply. So, what is your advice or your suggestions for evaluating? If it were up to me, we wouldn't have any formal assessments. I'm going to preface it with this. I don't know where you stand on that. And could tasks, super tasks, semi-super tasks, smaller tasks replace traditional assessment? Probably. Why not? And I think we've seen people doing it. Martin East in New Zealand, he has um, advocated for allowing students to record their own voices in the language classrooms while they do pair work or group work or give monologues. And then as they do those throughout the semester, they upload them to a Dropbox for their teacher. But they pick their three favorite ones at the end of the semester to submit for evaluation. So it's kind of a portfolio assessment. Um, And that has been um, revelationary for a lot of teachers that this allows students to be more of an active learner, lets them be agents. Um, The assessment goes on, uh, but it's just, a little bit more free and perhaps democratic. (laughs) And I could see us doing more of that, doing self-assessments, doing more self-guided assessments from students. Um, And this might as well be done because we know that in language programs, course grades do not correlate or correspond with proficiency Mm -hmm. because students come to the language classroom from all different backgrounds. Maybe they transferred in from another school or You've got students in third semester French who either had it in high school or didn't and were placed in your class directly after high school, or they came through the ranks and started French at the university and now they've landed in your class even though they've gotten C's before that. (laughs) Some of them got A's. So there's no such thing as a homogeneous language classroom. They're very heterogeneous and their proficiency is all over the map but we reward them in the class with grades based on their performance and their own person. It should be based on their own personal learning mm-hmm. um, and their effort. Do they come to the class? Do they turn things in? Are they helpful? Uh, they do their homework. Um, all of that is what gets calculated into course grades. So we, we sometimes measure proficiency to see how well we're doing teaching. But with our data at Michigan State, we're often seeing that how well they're doing in the class in terms of proficiency doesn't really have much to do with teaching because how well they do in proficiency is very dependent on what they brought with them to the class and that has nothing to do with the teacher who's there at the moment right right how so two more two questions here one how often should these if tasks turn into assessments and we have tasks every day would every day turn into just for the teacher per se as as an assessment not necessarily formal but could be an assessment and two 
I believe in TBLT, but a lot of research that's done isn't implemented in certain programs for whatever you know, a variety of reasons. How can we if train programs? How can we train teachers to implement this approach in their classrooms? Yeah, I think if our goal is proficiency, and we believe that proficiency comes through participation in tasks, um, then using tasks in the classroom and documenting students' work during tasks and their outcomes can be our measures of proficiency. If we collect enough evidence and supplement it with, with can-do self-assessments and student-uploaded files, that's great. Um, and I think for a lot of our classes, especially in the West, are proficiency-oriented, where task-based language teaching fits in really well. But it won't fit in when the language learning goal is not proficiency. Maybe the language learning goal could be language as subject. So I know that a lot of language programs, like I used to teach in China, um, and there, our outcome measure for students at the end of college would be a government test like the band four or the band six. Um, and those tests are very grammar driven, multiple choice. Um, there's a set curriculum that leads up to good performance on that test. And it's not a proficiency oriented test per se, but when, as long as that's the learning goal, which is parallel too, you could have tasks in the classroom. But if we're trying to, if the end goal is something other than proficiency as one would define it, um, then task-based instruction won't lead people towards that goal. Right. So there's a conflict perhaps in the task world <laughs> on how do you build good language learners because what the end goal is around the world is different. Right. And in pure task definition, the output or the outcome is non-linguistic. So what is the ability of the student at the end, right? So not being able to identify present perfect examples in a discourse, but being able to apply or go talk to their academic advisor about problem X, right? Mm -hmm. And then the input necessary is done through, through the task input. But would you agree that the, output, the, the, the results of a program should be non-linguistic? Hmm. You'd have to ask the people in the program what they want. Yeah. I don't think we should be too prescriptive of this. Um, because I think of all the different voices that you might hear. <laughs> and we can't, we can't dominate the world <laughs> and tell them how they should learn the language. I mean, language doesn't belong to anyone, right? So how they learn it is also a cultural thing and maybe seeped in history and traditions and how the education works in that country. So if what they have works for them, who are we to judge? Mm -hmm. um, that's where I worry that we shouldn't expect or demand that people use the same methods everywhere because not everyone wants to use the same methods. Right. So. You said that we need to bend the theories to fit around the data. So perhaps we need to bend our approach to fit around our students, right? Yes, and I think I've always said we need to listen to people <laughs> and we need to <laughs> listen to their voices. So if we, I keep getting Chinese visiting scholars in my task-based language teaching classes who say this won't work. 
this won't work hmm. for me. This won't work in my country. This won't work in my language program. Right. And instead of saying, oh, change the way you do things, maybe we should listen and say, okay, well, why isn't this working? What are your end goals? How is language taught there? Why is it taught that way? And then see how we might bend around our theories, um, how that might change our perspectives on language learning and what language learning is around the world. So I, I think my, my note is that we just have to keep gazing at the stars. The data is there, the way people teach is there, the reasons why, and we need, to, we need to see it so that we can understand it. We don't know what we're doing as a field until we know what everyone in the field is doing. Oh, I like that. A good way to, to end up, I think. Uh, Dr. Paula Winky, thank you so much. This was fantastic. I enjoyed it very much. And hello to everyone and to Missy Burrell. You've been listening to Teacher Talking Time, brought to you by Learn Your English. Ready to take control of your education? You're in the right place. Teaching, professional development, learning. Expand your world with Learn Your English.